Please be seated. Mary Decker was a child track prodigy. And she specialized in the 1,500 meter and the 3,000 meter races. Those are the, those are the long ones. The 1,500 is four laps. So I would guess the 3,000 would be like eight laps. I see that math. Pretty simple, right? In 1972, she was just 14 years old, and although she would have qualified for the Olympics, they considered her too young and wouldn't let her participate. In 1976, at the age of 18, she was battling injuries and did not qualify for the Olympics. Then in 1980, at the age of 22, which would have been her prime time to go, the United States boycotted the Moscow Olympics. So then in 1983, she wins the world championships in both the 1500 and the 3000 and is all primed at the age of 26, which is pretty old in track terminology, at least back then, to compete in the 1984 Olympics. This was her last chance to win an Olympic gold medal. And many of you will remember perhaps the incident where she is, it's about halfway through the 3,000 meter, and she is leading and everything seems to be going well. And then from behind her to her right comes this little South African girl by the name of Zola Bud, who was running barefoot. And if you remember, as she passes Mary Decker, she cuts to the inside lane, and Mary Decker trips over Zola Bud's feet, and she goes down in a heap, on the infield and you see that picture behind me and goes on and then you know eventually even Zola Bud was so upset by it she didn't even place in the race by the time it was all over but that was the last opportunity that Mary Decker had had and for you know years fault and blame is still kind of debated you know was it Zola Bud's fault that she cut in too quick Was it Mary Decker's fault because she should have given room to the girl coming in? And that's debated even to this day between Mary Decker and Zola Bud. They still disagree. Now, like we talked about this morning, they have come to peace with each other. But I don't think they really still like each other. I think there's still some resentment on Mary Decker's fault or on Mary Decker's Uh, part. You know, the apostle Paul, and I I don't know about you, but you know, if I, the two great, other than Jesus Christ himself, the two great characters in the new Testament are Peter and Paul. And if I have to identify with one of those two, I am more often going to identify with Peter. He just seems more relatable. certainly to me, always sticking his foot in his mouth, Always, you know, seemingly getting right to the, to the pinnacle of greatness almost, and then something dumb happens. And Paul just seems to be untouchable, you know, in, in, in some ways. But there is one thing that Paul and I have in common. Paul liked sports. And I guarantee you that if Paul was alive today, His favorite TV station would be ESPN. Because you look at all the athletic analogies that Paul uses in his writings, whether it's boxing, 
He talks about beating the wind, beating the wind. Or especially he uses the track analogy of running the race. First Corinthians chapter nine, he talks about, do you not know that, you know, not everybody that runs, you know, wins the prize and, and those people that run, run to get, to get a crown that is corruptible. But we run to receive a crown that is incorruptible. And then at the end of his life, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. There is now laid up for me a crown of righteousness that God has promised to me and not just to me, but all those who love his coming. And there is a little obscure verse in Galatians 5 and verse 7 where Paul uses this running analogy again. And in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 7, he says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you? And kept you from obeying the truth. And we get the idea that, that Paul has this, this, this uh, image of a race. And, and a runner leading the race. And a runner doing well. And then somebody cutting in. And impeding their process, progress. Just like Zola Bud and Mary Decker. Now I don't know about you. But I don't like to be cut off. I saw something on Facebook and it said, this week as a matter of fact, and it said, I will make you hit every orange cone before I let you merge into my lane because you saw the merge sign two miles back just like I did. And you didn't do it. That is, that is all me. Now you talk about a pet peeve. I will get millimeters away from the car in front of me. To not allow that car to merge in. Because I know that they could have merged in a mile back when I merged in as well. But no, they wanted to speed all the way up to the front and then cut in. No, I don't like that. I don't do that in the church bus where it says Church of Christ Dangerfield all over it. But in my private car with a mask on. But we don't, we don't, you know, we, and we get that image, that idea. Now, just a little background, not a whole lot, but, but the, the letter to the church in Galatia, churches in Galatia, is similar to what we've been studying on Sunday mornings, uh, the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, the Jewish Christians were having a struggle. Now, in Hebrews, the struggle was, and we know this, was to just kind of give up on Christianity altogether and go back to Judaism altogether. The churches in Galatia, they didn't want to do that, but what they were trying to do was kind of mix the two. Okay, yeah, we got this Christianity thing, but we like some of this old stuff from the old law. And so we're going to try to see if we can kind of mesh them together. And so Paul writes partly this letter to the Galatians to say, no, you, you can't do that. You can't. It, it's one or the other. Why would you, you know, go back to uh, law when we've been saved by grace? How many of us have been tripped up? We can see we, you know, you know, people in your lives, people in this church who are no longer here because they were tripped up. Something or somebody cut in and impeded their progress. They were running a good race. And then something 
happened. You remember the parable of the sower. Talked about the one that, you know, was started off real well and then didn't make it. Maybe some here, even tonight, that we're run, we were running the good race, but now things are not going so well. There are things impeding our progress. So Paul asked the question, who cut in on you? So tonight we're going to look at who or what posed potential obstacles to running a good race and running the race that God wants us to. First of all, one obstacle or one group of people is our past acquaintances and lifestyles. For those coming to Christ out of a worldly lifestyle, the draw back to their former way of life is very intense. And we've talked about this before. For some of us, we don't get that. We were never in that kind of a lifestyle. We don't understand the draw of, of, of living a certain way for so long and then having to make a 180 degree turn. And the draw of that lifestyle and old friends and old acquaintances trying to draw you back into your former way of life. Friends and running buddies pressure us to slide back into that way of life. It's easy to go back because that's what they're comfortable with. Look at the Hebrews. It was easy for them when things started getting rough in their Christianity to say, you know what? I think I'm going to leave this and go back to what I'm used to. Go back to what I'm comfortable with. Go back to Judaism and the old law and and the old traditions and all those kinds of things. And somebody who's come out of of a worldly lifestyle, when things begin to get a little tough, It's going to be easy to say, you know what? I think I'll just go back to where I was comfortable. To where, to what I know, what I've known for many, many, many years. Because this Christianity thing is different. And in many ways, this Christianity thing is difficult. There's a verse in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And I really like the way that the Living Bible translates it. Because in the, in the King James and even in the NIV, they use a couple words there that we don't use very often. And so the New Living, or the Living Bible translates it this way. Of course your former friends are very surprised when you no longer join them in the wicked things they do. And they say evil things about you. Don't you know that that has got to be a difficult thing? To have changed your way of life, to trying to be different, to trying to be a light, to trying to be pure, to trying to be righteous, trying to do the things that God wants you to do. And all your former friends, all your former running buddies, the people that used to hang around, they are totally confused. And they don't understand why you won't go with them and do the things that you used to do. And at the beginning, it may be kind of okay, well, all right. But eventually it's going to turn negative. And they're going to begin to say things like, you know, well, who do you think you are? What are you doing? Judging us? You know, goody two shoes or whatever. Uh, And things like that. That is why it is so important that we as a church family are welcoming and encouraging and enabling and involving. When somebody comes in from the world. We need to do everything we can to make them feel comfortable here and to make them feel like they belong here so that even though there may be that draw from the past, it's not as strong. And there's a strong draw to here as well. 
But uh, we do understand that uh, it is obviously the responsibility of that individual Christian. And they need to stay away. We need to stay away from the draws of the past. We may need to stay away from our old friends and from getting into situations and our old haunts. And we have a responsibility to protect ourselves. So it's a, it's a dual responsibility. The person has a, I have an individual responsibility to protect myself and try to keep myself out of those situations. But as a church family, you have a responsibility to provide what I'm missing, what I've left behind, and to make a place where I'm comfortable and I fit in. Secondly, some things and people that might be obstacles in our way or might cut in on us, and that is discouraging Christians. Now, that ought to be an oxymoron, right? Oxymoron are those two things that don't mix, like jumbo shrimp, you know? Military intelligence, yeah, you know? Those type things. Discouraging Christians. That just should not happen, should it? You know that that song, Home, Home on the Range, uh, where seldom is heard a discouraging word and the skies are not cloudy all day? Yeah, is that right? Okay. Well, forget that part. I don't care about the cloudy part. It's the discouraging word part. We ought to be a place as a church family where we are building one another up, where we are encouraging each other. That's what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings for 30 weeks. Well, it's been longer than 30 weeks, 30 lessons. I don't know how many weeks it's actually been, but encouraging one another. Because it is most devastating when discouragement comes from the ones we are close to. And for the, from the ones that we expect encouragement from. You know, it doesn't hurt me, really, when people in the world say discouraging things. When people in the world make wisecracks about our Christianity or about this or that. That doesn't bother me. I expect that, don't we? We expect that. But when it comes from one of you, or when it comes from me to you, That hurts, blindsides us. In the 1954 Cotton Bowl, Rice's Dickie Magel got the ball on his own five-yard line. And he ran around the right side of the the line, and he was off for a 95-yard untouched touchdown. Nobody was going to catch him. And the Alabama player by the name of Tommy Lewis came off the sidelines and tackled him. And then ran back onto the sidelines. <laughs> like, I didn't do it. <laughs> kind of like our kids, oh, I didn't do anything. Blindsided. And that's what it feels like when our own brothers and sisters say things that are discouraging, say things that upset us. It's unexpected, it's unanticipated. Here in our church family, we ought to be able to count on support, encouragement, and love. Now, does that mean that sometimes we don't need a little spurring on? Yeah. But even in that, it ought to be with love and with the idea of encouraging one another. We cannot allow, however, having said all that, we cannot allow insensitive or discouraging remarks keep us from running the race. 
No matter what you say to me or how you say it to me, I cannot let that affect my running my race with God. It's too important. It's way too important than to let something that you say or do to me that is discouraging in some way, hurtful even. I can't let that keep me from being what God wants me to be. This race is too important. You know, sometimes I've noticed... Sometimes people say hurtful things in a well-meaning way. Have you ever had that happen? They meant well. They didn't have any evil inside them, you know, animosity or anything like that. They just, it's just what they said was a little insensitive. They really didn't think about it. But you know what? There are some mean people. There are some mean people who just say mean things. Not because they're insensitive, just because they're mean. But it doesn't matter. I can't let that discourage me from doing what God wants me to do. We had a person that would often offer what this person thought was constructive criticism to song leaders. It was not constructive criticism. It was discouraging criticism. And we had a young man, one of our teenagers, had led singing that night. And I saw this person heading towards the young man. And I cut him off. (laughs) I said, "Uh uh-uh, nope. Nope. Unless what you're going to say is encouraging and positive and there's not a single bit of negativity to it, don't you even go talk to that young man. Because it was not the time for that young man to be discouraged, but encouraged. Because if that man had gotten to him, that may have been the last time that young man ever led singing in his life. Shouldn't, have been, shouldn't be that way, but it quite easily could have been. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is encouraging and building up. That ought to be our our motto. I know it ought to be my motto. I need to put that on my mirror. I need to put it in my office. I need to write it, you know, wherever. You know, maybe on my contacts. I don't know if that would work. You know, Let no unwholesome talk, but only what is building up and encouraging so that we can make sure that we are not discouraging. But we cannot let others discourage us from running the race. Thirdly, is Satan and sin can get in our way. Remember in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, he said, Therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw aside all the sin and stuff that entangles us. And again, I think that writer, may have been Paul, that writer, again, kind of has the idea of the, of, of the runner. You know, who, when a runner begins to run, runners don't run in, in all kinds of clothes. You know, they get down to the bare minimum so that there's nothing dragging them. Nothing to get in the way. And that's what the writer is saying there. We can't let sin and Satan and all the evil things in our lives get in our way and bring us down. On D-Day, in the invasion of Normandy, as the uh, 
troop transports were getting close to the beach because of some mixed calculations and the bad weather and things like that, and also because of the uh, fire from the German positions above them. You know, a lot of a lot of the times when that when that door would go down, the soldiers had no choice but to jump over the sides, and because of all the heavy equipment and the packs that they were wearing, it just drugged them down. It's estimated that perhaps as many soldiers drowned at D-Day as were killed by enemy fire. That's what all this baggage does to us. That's what this sin does to us. Remember, what the, uh, let us encourage one another as long as it's called a day so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Dragged down. We got to make sure that we don't allow these things in our lives to entangle us and hinder the progress that we are making. Fourthly, is there one after that? That's what I thought. Well, there is one after that. (laughs) But fourthly, I knew there were five. I told you there were five. Okay, anyway, this is between me and Jamie. I'll get back with you all in a minute. Fourthly are the trials of life. I remember Jim McGuigan, when he was here speaking to us, he said, we are not exempt from the trials of life. You know, some of us kind of get the idea, and maybe we've heard this proclaimed in other places, that, you know, when we become a Christian, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. We're not going to have any more trials. We're not going to have any more tribulations. We're not going to have... Really? Christians get sick. Christians have accidents. Christians lose their jobs. Lots of trials happen to Christians, just like it happens to the rest of the world. And if our vision of coming to God has been, if our expectation of becoming a Christian is that, you know, all these things are going to go away and I'm not going to have any more problems, then what happens when these things come upon us? We're tempted to give up. We're tempted to blame God. We're, Wait, whoa, whoa, God, this isn't what I expected. This isn't how I thought it was going to be. But Christians go through these things as well. We cannot allow these to impede our progress, to question God's love or concern for us. McGuigan also said, first believe it, then wrestle with it. I remember that. And that's what we talked about, you know, so many times. When we don't understand, when things are confusing, when it doesn't seem right, we got to remember that God is and God loves me. And whatever's happening in my life, I have to, to understand in that context. This doesn't, you know, why did I get sick? Why did, why did my family member die? Why, why did I lose my job? Why, why is this going on? I don't know, but I know that God loves me. I know that God loves me. So I have to interpret it in light of that. And not allow these things going on to uh, uh, hinder us from the race that we are running. Psalm 73, you remember that psalm is one of my favorites. Because that's the one where the writer says, you know what? My feet almost slipped. I, I, I almost gave up. Because I looked around and something wasn't right. 
all the wicked people were prospering. They didn't have any problems in their lives. And here I am, I'm trying to serve God and I got nothing but woes and sorrows. What's up with that, God? And then he says, then I came to the house of the Lord. And then I remembered that it's not about what happens here. It's about what's promised later. Yeah, the evil and the wicked, they may prosper here. But what good is that going to do them in the end? Paul said he was convinced that all the hardships, trials, and tribulations that we were going through right now are not even worth comparing to what God has in store for us in the end. So we can't let those things come between us and God. If there was a number five, it would be the distractions of life. You see, if Satan can't put obstacles in front of us for us to trip over or to hinder our progress, he'll simply just get us distracted. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The parable of the sower, the seed that fell on the thorny ground and it sprang up rather quickly. But then all the thorns and the weeds and all of that, you know, the pressures of life and all this thing, all of a sudden just choked it out until it died. Not bad things. Not evil things, not the not Satan and sin that we got up there, not those things, because because we eventually become mature enough, we recognize those things. I'm not going to do those things anymore. I know that's wrong. He says, all right, if you're not going to trip over that hurdle, if you're not going to let me cut in on you and, and, and impede your progress there. I'll just get your life so full of good things. That it squeezes out the most important thing. It could be our job. It could be our family. It could be education. It could be leisure. It could be recreation. It could be, it could be, uh, uh, volunteer groups that we volunteer with. All good things, not in and of themselves bad. But we fill up our lives so much with that that it chokes out the important thing of our relationship with God that it has hindered us from making progress we need to understand that there is a time or a place for certain things and an importance of certain things and the most important thing is God we are in a race we are in an important race a race with the most amazing prize now the best thing about this race is we all get the prize we're all winners You know, you may not know this. It's kind of been a a secret. But there's a football game going on right now. I know, you're shocked. You're shocked I would know that. And at the end of that game, one team is going to get the trophy. And the other team's not. One person wins. One person doesn't. But in this race... In this race, we all win. And we can all get the prize. I mentioned before that my uh, uh, brother-in-law and my niece run in, in marathons. And Katie's going to the Boston Marathon this year. Is that right? She qualified to go to the Boston Marathon. 
I don't want to put words in Katie's mouth. But does she have any expectation of winning the Boston Marathon? I don't think so. I, I, you know, I don't think so. I know my brother-in-law and my niece, when they ran in the Boston Marathon, they had no vision of winning the Boston Marathon. But it was all about finishing. It was all about finishing. And that's what this race is all about. We can't let anything get in our way. You know, Chuck knows this. Some of you, you know, my, my daughters both ran hurdles all through junior high and high school. So I have, I have seen a million hurdle races. Chuck's seen two million or five million compared to me. But there always seems to be one kid who should have never, ever been put in the hurdle race. But the coach, either as punishment maybe, if it's the 300 hurdles, or because they didn't have anybody else to run it, or because this kid just wanted to be in track but really wasn't good enough to do anything else, and nobody else ran hurdles, they put him in the hurdles or hurt. And so the gun goes off, and you got the real hurdlers who separate themselves pretty early from the rest of the pack. And then you have those who are quasi-hurdlers. They kind of got the technique. They kind of know what they're supposed to do, but they're not very fast at it. And they're kind of in the middle of the pack. And then you got the stragglers who don't have a clue to what they're doing. And they run up to the hurdle as fast as they can and jump over it. And then run up to the next one as fast as they can and jump over it. And by the time they get to the last couple of hurdles, they are exhausted. And what do they do? They just push it down and walk over it. You know what? It still counts. Still counts. They're not ever going to win a race that way. But they finish. Now there may be times in our Christian life we feel like there is absolutely no way we can get over that last hurdle. Then just push it down and walk over it. Do whatever you need to do to finish the race. And don't let anyone or anything cut in on you and impede your progress. Paul said, you were in a good race. You were out there right in front. What happened? Who cut in on you? What got in your way? We don't want that to be the story of our race. We want to finish. We want to finish. If you're here this evening in some way, we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. 
If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.